Hello and welcome to this episode of the 74 and West Exclusives podcast. In this episode, we're talking all about marketing. We've all heard that marketing metrics are valuable, but what exactly are marketing metrics anyway? We'll learn about some of the most effective marketing methods and explode the myth that such marketing is really only the kind of thing big wealthy companies can afford. We also wonder, how do you quantify the value of something like a brand? Plus, we know marketing can be good for businesses, but can it be good for society? Our very own Derek Burnett spoke to David Riebstein about all of this and more. David is a bit of a legend in the field of marketing. He's a professor of marketing at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. He's the chairman-elect of RRBM, Responsible Research in Business and Management, and was the former chairman of the board for the American Marketing Association. He's an author, and well, that's just scratching the surface. So, let's get on with this discussion with David Riebstein, as led by Derek Burnett. So obviously, we're going to be talking about marketing today, and a lot of our listeners will be marketers, so this will be a topic that's dear to their hearts. But for those who aren't in that specialty, you know, some might wonder what the fuss is about. Um, You've made marketing the focus of your life's work. Can you tell us a bit about how you got there, what attracted you to the field of marketing, and what it is about it that keeps you so interested? So I I have been enamored with marketing for what is now literally uh, decades. I I guess I would say that uh, my inception to the field was I grew up with a couple parents that owned a small independent drugstore in the center of the country. And in that, I was, was finding myself pricing products and putting them on the shelf and noticing when one brand sold over another brand and, and how that was associated with any advertising that was going on. Um, I noticed uh, companies that would offer various different SKUs or stock keeping units and was sort of always curious about that. And I would say that that started from a very, very young age. It turned out to be a lifelong fascination. But then when I went to college, I found that um, I was studying various different areas um, and, and quantitatively, that's really where my skill set was. I, I have a degree in, in math and statistics, and actually my PhD is predominantly in uh, multivariate statistics and econometrics as applied to marketing. Um, but I also was very interested in the human side. And so while I could go into finance or accounting um, and do very, very well at that, based on all the numbers that are involved, what I saw was that was lacking some of the human quality side. And, and so it was, how do I balance, you know, being able to look at the numbers and understand some of the quantitative aspects as they applied to what it is that appealed to customers. So marketing was a great intersection between the human side and being able to quantify what it is that we do and how well it works. Being able to quantify what it is marketers do and how well it works That's become something of an obsession for Dr. Riebstein, who's been a pioneer of the subspecialty known as marketing metrics. So I asked him to provide us with a definition of marketing metrics. I should be able to define that, given I've I've written a book and it's now in its fourth edition on that. Uh, Yet it remains a little bit of a nebulous uh, concept, so I'm glad you asked, which is that it is how do we measure what it is that we're doing in marketing and that might be, you know, measuring awareness or measuring market share. Those things are all part of marketing metrics. 
But there are other things such as a brand and how can we quantify or measure the what a brand is and how important it is to consumers and and mapping that into financial statements and all of that is within the the overall umbrella of what it is that I refer to as marketing metrics. Is it too reductive to think of marketing metrics as gauging the return on investment of marketing activities? I think that's one component. Uh, so we we often want to look at you know what's that ROI of my marketing, but I I may want to look at you know as I said what's my brand awareness or how satisfied are customers with what it is that I'm doing. Now those are all precursors to trying to measure the return on marketing. Uh, but, but you know, those are all metrics as well. And, and so I, I think it's broader than just looking at the ROI of marketing. Is this uh, out of reach of small companies? You know, is this for the, the big guns to do? Or is this something that every company should be thinking about? Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked that because people often think, well, it's only for the big companies that have these massive, you know, databases and, and a team of you know, marketing analysts, um, but I would argue that it, it applies to everybody. My, my local florist keeps a great database she, uh, on index cards. Forget the computer. She has index cards, and she knows that, you know, that Dave Reepstein orders flowers for his daughter on this date, and she, she measures, you know, which of her customers are regular customers, which of them, you know, are ordering what types of products and, and tries to, to try and capture what it is that works well with them. And, and that's my local florist and, and able, to, able to use that very uh, productively. That sounds simple, but of course, marketing metrics goes beyond notes on index cards. So I asked Dr. Reebstein what first steps a company should take if they want to make marketing metrics a part of their work. So I think one of the, the, the prime things to be looking at is start looking, at, and it's easier for small businesses in some sense, because I could look at individual customers. How many customers do I have? That, by the way, that's a marketing a metric, number of customers. How frequently do they buy? Um, what is their repurchase rate? And so do I have to go out and get new customers every time? Or do I have some recurring customers? I think that's where it is that I would want to start, is just looking at that. And, and then the issue is, what do I need to do to increase the repurchase rate or the retention of my existing customers? And that is different than what do I need to do in order to acquire new customers? And so look at what activities you do that brings in new customers and what activities you do that increases your repurchase rate or your retention of your customers. There are other measures like how satisfied are my customers with me? That's a really easy thing to measure. Although they've come up with, you know, there are various measures now that sort of say, well, we can measure satisfaction this way or we can measure it that way. One of the things that I've tried to do in uh, my marketing metrics book is say, let's be really clear about the definitions that we have here and how we can measure them and what, what you know, how we could use these types of measures. And, and that's what the whole purpose of that book is. It's not a, a thriller mystery story or something, you know, that, 
that builds up. It's like, here's an array of different things that we could be looking at so we get a better picture of what's working and what's not. I wondered what measurements people usually struggle the most with. Certainly trying to measure the value of a brand is one that people struggle with a lot. Often when I ask what's the value of a brand, people say, well, I'm able to charge X percent over what my competition's charging. That must be the value of my brand. And I think that's only part of the answer to that question. It is the case that, yes, you're able to charge more because, uh, perhaps because of your brand, but you also are able to get volume because of your brand. And so I think both of those play into it, and it's, uh, and it's harder to capture what percent of my volume comes from it. There are relatively easy ways to try and capture that, but that's not as obvious. And what are some of those methods? So the, the general approach, and this, this will be a little bit more complicated. As I said, it's, it's a more complex thing to try and exactly measure. Uh, if, if you ask me, how do I measure the value of a brand? My answer is, I use a technique that's known as conjoint measurement. Ugh. Uh, for those of us school, schooled in conjoint measurement, oh, that's nothing. But for many people, it's, uh, it's, it's a new concept, which is basically, I take a sample of customers and I give them a choice. And by the way, you could do that with an individual customer. Here are some choices that vary on, on, on sets of dimensions, uh, be it price or how quickly I can deliver the product. Um, and this is offered by, by Dave. And here are some other features that are offered by Derek. Which would you prefer? And I would, I in, end up giving you a set of, of pairs of choices that vary on those dimensions. And I see how often people always go to the Derek choice versus go to the Dave choice across the combination of the other particular dimensions. And that's, that's the, the simplest explanation. But what I can say is people could go to, there's some software known as Sawtooth Software. They are the largest provider of conjoint measurement. And, um, and brand could be one of the dimensions that one measures the importance of. If you feel like you've seen that kind of testing before, you probably have. Uh, this is a technique widely utilized. Um, it was utilized, I, I was involved in the Apple versus Samsung uh, patent infringement case. And it was a technique that was used to measure the importance of various different features that, uh, that had been alleged to have been infringed. And, um, but also were able to measure, well, how valuable to people is the Apple name versus the Samsung name in making their choice. So it can be used by large companies, it can be used by small companies. And again, let me go back to the example that I mentioned of my local florist. And, you know, I could buy a dozen roses from, uh, from Dolores Flowers, or I could buy a dozen roses from, uh, from Derek's uh, Flower Boutique. And which am I more likely to choose? And am I willing to pay more from Dolores? because I, I give some value to Dolores. And so it's, it's a pretty simple concept to get your hands around. What kinds of business decisions do these kinds of metrics help a company make? We want to know what, what customer psychology or perceptions are of things. And we can see if I introduce a product, 
under an existing brand name or introduce a product under a different brand name? How likely are they to, uh, to choose the product? And let me give you a specific example. Hyundai introduced a high-end car called the Hyundai Genesis, and they used the Hyundai name. They could have done something very different and introduced it under a totally different name, um, like, like Toyota did when they introduced Lexus. And we could sort of observe what the behavior is. Today's methodology of what people are doing are what are called A-B tests. That is, I'm going to take a sample of people and in, in cell A, I present it to them. Here, here's this product. It happens to have the Hyundai named on it. And cell B, here's this product, and it doesn't have the Hyundai name on it. Which one are you likely to choose? And by the way, what I'll tell you in that particular case is, is Hyundai chose to do it under the Hyundai name. And they found that the demand for the Hyundai Genesis went down when they included the Hyundai name versus if they had created a name just Genesis, which is what they now have eventually done is they've dropped the Hyundai part of it and just call it the Genesis car. Are you saying that the, the research showed that that is what would happen, but they chose to go with the Hyundai name anyway, and then only after it hit the market, they reverted? They had not done that research, but they, but, but they could have done that research, and, uh, and, they, and they ended up not doing so, and, um, and the net effect is it hurt their sales uh, with the Genesis. What do you see as the, the proper interplay between qualitative and quantitative methods in assessing consumer sentiment? Um, I think the qualitative methods are, are very, very important. My, my bias is I want to do the qualitative methods to better inform me about what it is that I want to quantify. So almost always before I would design a survey, um, I want to get the terminology that people uh, use, and I want to find out what are the dimensions that customers use for trying to select across the various choices that they have. And so I think uh, I get a better understanding of what the dimensions are and the terminology that they use, and, uh, through, and I get that through the qualitative approach, and I get the quantitative is very useful for trying to quantify um, in some statistically uh, you know, confident way, uh, the magnitude of uh, how they might prefer one, one feature versus another. And, and what form does that qualitative piece tend to take? It often is in focus groups or, uh, or you know, interpersonal inter, uh, interviews that end up happening. So it could be one-to-one -one, or it could be in, uh, in relatively small groups. I wanted to ask you a bit about your work and your thinking around the intersection of marketing and society. There is, for example, a movement toward responsible research in marketing. And one of the things I find interesting about it is that one of its guiding principles is that marketing research be societally useful. So not just accurate and effective, but actually useful to society. Most of us are used to thinking that business research, of course, should be accurate and effective, in order to just achieve your commercial ends, we don't often think about marketing as being otherwise useful to society. Why do you think that this responsible research in marketing movement is putting social usefulness front and center? 
It's a great question. And by the way, I don't think you know this about me, but I just became the chairman of an organization called Responsible Research in Business and Management. And so th this whole notion of marketing having some social responsibility and business and business research having social responsibility is front and center for me right now. Um, and I think it is the reality that business plays a bigger role in society than just trying to maximize you know, uh, shareholder value. This, he says, is part of a broader trend. The business roundtable ended up rewriting what their mission is, which is not to maximize shareholder value, but to, to uh, serve stakeholders. And those stakeholders are employees, as well as customers, as well as society. And I think there's all sorts of roles that marketing itself can play in, uh, in trying to be more responsible. For example, marketing should be playing a role in how we roll out vaccines and how we encourage people to, uh, to be vaccinated. And, um, and one could start thinking about the role of, of marketing um, on how we get uh, sustainable product use. How do we get companies to be offering products that are societally responsible? And how do we get customers to behave that way? All things that marketing could and should be facilitating. I asked Dr. Reebstein where that push toward socially responsible marketing was coming from. Why are we moving in that direction? Because it's the recognition that we play, we're just one part of this larger ecosystem called society. And our students are demanding it, our customers are demanding it, and our society and certainly our environment are demanding that we be more responsible in what we do in marketing and in business. Yeah, it's fascinating how this folds into you know this broader trend that includes socially responsible investing and, and ESG. It feels like we're really witnessing a shift in values that it seems like could fundamentally reshape capitalism, no? Uh, I certainly hope so, and I agree with you. I think we're definitely moving in that direction. It's about time. It was actually part of what motivated me to get into the field in the very beginning is I thought we, as a field marketing, could be playing a much greater role in making sure that our products are safe and in, 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 in making sure that customers are making good decisions that serve them and serve society. And as you say, I think we're seeing sort of a, a, a shift overall and, and companies in their own best interest are, are moving to better serve society. You talked about uh, issues of sustainability, uh, for example, like, and, and the, the vaccine rollouts and how marketing can help there. You also co-authored a paper called How Marketing Can Save Democracy. Tell us about that. What role does marketing have in helping to preserve our democracy? To some degree, by the way, I think marketing is partially responsible for the divide that we have in the country. Um, and so it's almost the opposite of what you just asked me is, you know, mar marketing has played this role of, hey, you've got a target set of customers over here, you know, media appeal to, you know, Fox appeal to the far, far uh, right, MSNBC appeal to the, uh, the far left. And it's, it's being very targeted in their segmenting and marketing to those subgroups. Marketing needs to help bring those groups together 
and, and recognize that we have a, a greater role in trying to bring society together. What I talked about in that chapter of the book of marketing's role in, uh, in democracy is um, getting marketing should be able to help get people out to vote so that whoever it is that happens to be representing us in, uh, in our government are what the people choose and that the people are fully informed. And if we think about marketing's role in disseminating information and, in, and encouraging people to get out and vote, um, I think marketing plays a big role. And that's what it is that I wrote about in that chapter. Yeah, it's interesting. You've already alluded to a, sort of a, a fundamental, I don't know, irony or, or paradox here uh, in terms of marketing's role. And in that chapter, you, you point to Donald Trump as being not necessarily a, a driver of, but certainly an instrument of the undermining of our democracy. And yet he's widely credited, and I think rightly so, as being a brilliant marketer, right? So it stands to reason that marketing could just as easily destroy democracy as, as foster it. So, uh, so I don't characterize him as a brilliant marketer. I, th I, um, I think that's a misnomer to, uh, to refer to him as a brilliant marketer because he has a loud voice and because he gets a lot of awareness um, those are some characteristics of marketers, but I think it is really important um, that marketers are truthful. Um, and, um, and in that sense, um, you know, we, we are aware of all the, um, the lies that he has told. And in that sense, I, I don't characterize him as a great marketer. Just to sort of play that out a little bit more, I mean, there's this issue of marketing fatigue, right? It seems like maybe one of the hallmarks of late capitalism is this resistance to marketing that a lot of us walk around with. Most of us hate it when we realize that someone is marketing to us. And to me, if not the brilliance, at least the effectiveness of Trump is that he took advantage of that anti-marketing sentiment by playing the role of the straight shooter who tells it like it is, you know, sort of removing that concern that people had that they were being marketed to well, all along, of course, he was using some pretty tried and true propaganda techniques. And so, I, I don't know, I guess I, I wonder, what do you think about the, the idea that we do have this resistance to marketing, this marketing fatigue, and how, how can that be factored in or overcome in this project to use marketing to save democracy? So, uh, I, I think it's easy to pick on marketing and, and to say, you know, this is, this is not what it is that we want in society today. Um, and, and we think of, well, marketers are trying to manipulate us. And, and in that sense, you know, I understand the, the negative reaction to marketing. Um, but if we also look at it and say, you know, part of what marketing does is make sure that we communicate to the right people. Um, and that we don't get communication that reaches us uh, about uh, baby diapers if we don't have babies. But the people who do have babies are interested in, you know, what's the best baby diaper and where can I find it? What's the lowest price and how do I easily get access to it? And that's all part of marketing. And I don't think people have objection to that. There's the, the creepiness about, well, what do they know about me? And so there's this interesting balance. I want to be exposed to things that are relevant to me yet I don't want too much information being out there. And, and I think that's the, the balancing act 
that companies have to play right now. Um, and and so I, I'm hoping that's getting to your question. Maybe I went off on some tangent, uh, but um, I, I think in some areas, marketing deserves the black eye that it has, um, in part because it is, um, in, in the way you've characterized Trump, it has gone out and has characterized himself as this is the truth, but then has, you know, exaggerated things in one direction or another. How do you think we're doing right now? You know, it's been a few years since you wrote that paper. And since then, we've had a lot happen. We've had the rise of QAnon and the 2020 elections and the January 6th insurrection and the pandemic, of course, with all of its disinformation. So where do you think the trend lies today and how successful have we been in affecting the kind of change that you're looking for? Um, I think we've got a long way to go. Uh, I am, am very frightened by where it is that we are going. Uh, I, it, it is the case we were successful in getting a large voter turnout, and I think that is great. Um, but I think the voter turnout while it was wonderful, the, the people were as divided as you could possibly imagine. I'm not referring to the vote being 50-50, but it is that I, I can't believe that so many people voted the other direction and I'm rejecting it. And so it's all under what, what is being characterized as the big lie. If, if the vote didn't turn out the way I feel, then it, it must be wrong. Some of that is because there's this geographic concentration of people and, um, and, and you look around and everyone around you feels this particular way. How is it that the vote possibly could have turned out another way? So there, there's a whole bunch of Republicans that are surrounded by other Republicans that say, everybody I know is in favor of, of Donald Trump. How could the vote have turned out another way? It must have been. It must have been erroneous. And similarly, there are Democrats that are that are surrounded by other Democrats that are, are have got that attitude. And the the beliefs have been so entrenched in people's minds that um, that I think it makes it hard for people to accept what it is that ha has turned out. So I'm not encouraged by where we are, and I think we have a long way to go. This has been. Really fascinating. You've given us a, a lot to think about. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise with us. I really appreciate it. Okay, thank you, Derek. Appreciate it. And thank you for listening. Remember to rate and review this podcast and don't forget to subscribe. And if robust conversations and insights like you've heard here are what you'd like to have from your own clients, visit 74andwest.com. That's 74-A-N-D-W-E-S-T dot com to learn all about 74 and West's client intelligence offering. Thank you and be well.